Welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. I know it's been a minute. Um, I have a lot going on. We had the holidays. Um, I got to go see my family for the first time in a little bit. Um, as some of you know, I'm in the process of starting my own practice and doing a Rice Family Style Intervention. So I had to go back to school for a little bit. So there is just a lot going on. Uh, that's why you haven't heard from me in a little bit. Um, I was planning to do the Von Dutch, uh, the rise and fall of Von Dutch, but um, all of the research I did seemed to be really, really biased. Um, I just really couldn't find anything really objective. Um, the way that they depicted and talked about one of the founders, they just constantly called him an ex-convict. Um, they blatantly uh one of the articles blatantly uh, said that he was a money launderer, which at no point did he ever m launder money through either of his uh, streetwear companies. Um, they just were not depicting him in uh, anything. They just didn't want to depict him as anything but a convict. So I really couldn't find anything that other than those depictions of him as a convict, there was just nothing that, that, um, other than them consistently calling him an ex-convict and talking about his convictions. And like I said, there were a couple articles where they flat out claimed that he laundered money through companies, which he never did. In order to be a money launderer, you have to take the money back out, which he never did. Um, so given that there were grossly biased reporting on this, I just didn't feel that I could really give you a fair uh, story of what happened. So instead, we're going to be looking into the story of Teresa Ramirez. She was a individual who suffered from body dysmorphia, um, and it led her to commit a fairly heinous crime. So um, just one thing that will always happen with me if I don't feel that I can get unbiased uh, source material in order to do my research, I'm just not going to uh, do the topic. Uh, so we'll start with, um, and like I said, as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for continuing to support me. Without you guys, um, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Like I tell you at the beginning of every episode, never thought I would be doing this for this long. Uh, so thank you so much. And um, to come, um, my brother actually has a podcast. It's called The Real Deal uh, sports talk with KP and we are actually going to do an episode together about a sports crime so in the near future there will be a crossover episode with the real deal sports talk with my little brother KP from the real deal sports talk so look forward to that sometime in the near future and let's get into it Body dysmorphic disorder is a type of obsessive compulsive disorder. An individual with body dysmorphic disorder is overly preoccupied with what are perceived as gross imperfections in their appearance and spends an hour or more every day thinking about the way they look. In reality, the imperfections are imagined or are only slight and barely noticed by others, if even at all. The affected person may be obsessed with certain body parts, particularly related to their face or head, or with their weight or body shape. 
the symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder often begin in the early teens or even in childhood and are all related to the person's appearance. According to the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic manual that the psychiatric community uses, the symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder include preoccupation with one or more perceived defects in the physical appearance that are not observable to others, performance of repetitive behaviors such as checking mirrors, excessive grooming, skin picking, reassurance seeking, or mental acts such as comparing one's appearance with that of others in response to concerns about their own appearance, clinically significant distress or impairment in functioning caused by this preoccupation. Individuals with body dysmorphic disorder are constantly checking themselves in the mirror, grooming excessively, over-exercising, skin picking or hair plucking, and comparing themselves to others. In addition to an extreme obsession with their looks, people with body dysmorphic disorder try to hide their perceived flaws by holding their body in certain ways, covering up with makeup or clothing, or trying to improve their imagined defects sometimes with plastic surgery or other cosmetic practices such as extreme makeup. Even when steps are taken to make improvements, the person is still unhappy with their appearance. The obsession, repetitive behavior, and the constant covering up create stress for the affected individual and can have a negative impact on daily functioning and quality of life. Major depression is common in those with body dysmorphic disorder, as are suicidality and suicidal behaviors. Some of the most common and faulty thoughts that affect individuals with body dysmorphic disorder include that they are ugly, that others are making fun of how they look, how they are constantly compared to other people, the importance of their aesthetic appearance, um, that their fixation on tiny singular features, um, how they might make themselves feel safer such by avoiding eye contact or camouflaging themselves so that they don't stick out camouflaging tiny 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 flaws whether they're real or perceived people with body dysmorphic disorder represent about 2.4 percent of the population but they make up 13 percent of cosmetic surgery patients yet the disorder is one about body image so cosmetic treatment are never going to solve the problem Body dysmorphic disorder has a genetic component because the likelihood of the condition is higher for those who have a first degree relative with obsessive compulsive disorder. Environmental factors also come into play. Individuals with body dysmorphic disorder often have a history of childhood abuse, neglect, or other childhood traumas, and may also have a parent or sibling with anxiety disorder. Those with this condition may also have anxiety disorders as well, such as obsessive compulsive disorders, social anxiety disorders, or some type of personality disorders. Or they may also struggle with substance use disorder. Body dysmorphic disorder is not an eating disorder, so do not confuse the two of them. Though both conditions exhibit simil sim similarly, excuse me, severe and abnormal body image concerns, and they both deal with self-esteem issues. About 2.4% of adults in the US have body dysmorphic disorder, according to the diagnostic manual. The prevalence is that 2.5% of 2.5% of women and 2.2% of men. The most common age of onset is 12 to 13 years old, and the median age of onset is 15. 
according to the DSM-5. Symptoms typically emerge gradually and they're similar in both children, adolescents, and adults. So across the board, the symptoms um, are similar and they come out rather gradually. Now, Teresa Mary Ramirez was born in 1952. She grew up in San Francisco. She was the oldest of three children. Teresa Ramirez was a registered orthopedic nurse. Uh, she grew up in South San Francisco. Though she lived alone with her Cocker Spaniel, she was close with all of her siblings and she made a very comfortable life for herself. It seemed it was only after she was diagnosed with breast cancer that her life really started to unravel. And as unfortunate as this sounds, it's actually fairly common when women lose a breast or both to breast cancer because we as women have been really conditioned to believe that the biggest sign of our femininity and our even just our womanhood is our breasts. And so a lot of times when women lose a breast or both of their breasts to breast cancer, they feel like they lose their femininity or their womanhood. And it can cause many women to suffer body dysmorphia. And it, like I said, it goes beyond that. It's tied to their feeling of losing their sense of womanhood. Uh, Teresa first consulted Dr. Michael Tavis after losing her right breast to cancer in 1988. After meeting her, Dr. Tavis had written in his medical record that she was a delightful 36-year-old lady. In September of 1988, Dr. Tavis agreed to remove her healthy remaining breast, and in January, she reconstructed both with silicone implants. Painful scar tissue formed, and as a result, he operated again to remove it. Not long afterward, Teresa complained that her implants were leaking and uneven in size. Dr. Tavis then performed yet another surgery. By now, Teresa had developed a reputation among Petaluma Valley Hospital staff as being impossibly difficult to deal with. Altogether, Teresa had 13 breast surgeries, each of which left her increasingly dissatisfied. In early 1990s, she asked her HMO or her insurance company to fund a new procedure, a request that doctors thought was cosmetic and therefore refused. Teresa's response was to go to Dr. Tavis and threaten to puncture her implants herself. Now, what some of you may not, if you're not in the United States, um, cosmetic procedures are not covered by insurance. They only will deal with things that deal with health issues, which is why the breast surgeries were dealt with to begin with. If you lose a breast to cancer, they're going to pay for reconstructive surgery. So that's why they covered it to begin with. Anything after the reconstruction, dealing with the scar tissue, that's all considered life-saving. That's all considered health issues. Anything beyond that's considered uh, cosmetic and they're not going to pay for it. So the you know, the fact that her insurance is not paying for this new surgery she wanted after she's had 13 surgeries. Like, I get it. She had scar tissue. She felt like they were uneven. That Just that in and of itself, to, to give you an idea, I had, um, I had a uh, reduction and, you know, I had a little of uneven scarring. And they were absolutely not going to pay to have that dealt with. So just the fact that she had an insurance company that was willing to pay for scar tissue or willing to pay for her to have another surgery when she claimed they were uneven means she has 
absolutely wonderful, wonderful insurance. The fact that she was able to get 13 of these surgeries for anything from uneven breasts to scar tissue means she is really, really, really great insurance. So the fact that at surgery 14, they were like, absolutely wrong. We're not covering anything else. That's, yeah, she's pushing it. The fact that she was even able to get more than one surgery, as crazy as that sounds, yeah, that's, yeah, she had some pretty great insurance, uh, to be honest. So the fact that when she couldn't get anything else covered, the fact that she went in and threatened to pop her implants herself, that right there shows you how, how really, really severe her body dysmorphia is. The fact that she's willing to actually mutilate herself to get the surgery done to make herself look how she wants. So in 1992, she was awarded $100,000 in damages after claiming that one of her implants was punctured when her pickup truck was rear-ended in a car accident. Her insurance enabled her to pay yet a different cosmetic surgeon, a Dr. William Shaw, for a different surgery. Dr. Shaw was the head of plastic surgery at UCLA, and he has a stellar reputation. I mean, you would have to have an amazing reputation to be the head of plastic surgery at UCLA. He preferred a tram flap procedure in which fat from your abdomen is used to fill your breasts. Now, given the fact that a lot of people are having breast implants removed because they're saying it, it actually has been shown that breast implants breast implants can make you sick. It ha they can have negative impact on your body. This actually could be seen as kind of smart. She's actually having fat put in instead of the silicone to replace the silicone. So it could be seen as kind of smart. Dr. Shaw later stated that both implants were intact after her car accident. So they gave her $100,000 in damages and for a lie. She told a lie just to get another, sur another surgery. So that was absolute scam. Yet even after several more follow-up operations. So when she went in to get this tram flap surgery, that was her 14th surgery. She had several more after that. Teresa was bitter and unhappy. Her sister-in-law, Laura, later said in Teresa's defense, she just kept trying to get it right, but felt like it kept getting botched. That year, Teresa sued Dr. Tavis for malpractice. But in 1995, her suit was dismissed because her attorney could not produce any evidence to support that any that she had been wronged in any way. Teresa's behavior became increasingly more and more erratic. In mid-1995, she stalked into Dr. Tavis's office and called him a butcher in front of a waiting patient. She also confronted Dr. Robert Fias, a doctor who worked for her HMO, creating a scene in his office by exposing her breasts. Teresa's sister, Patricia Bushman, believes it was when Teresa was diagnosed with diabetes the following year that she was pushed over the edge. As soon as she found out, Patricia said, something in her mind clicked off. But before we get into that, here is a word from our sponsor. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. Pair makes it easy for you 
With do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag and drop page designs, and they have a guaranteed US-based support technician ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's pair.com slash free. Promo code QUICKSTART to get started today. Now, back to our story. Now, you have to remember that in the 90s, the plastic surgery business was booming in a way that it never was before. A bit of that was due to Pamela Anderson, the Baywatch. Everybody saw her transformation before their eyes and breast implants was a big part of that boom. Dr. Michael Tavish was then one of Northern California's top plastic surgeons, but his career came to an end when he was murdered by dis gruntled patient. Michael James Tavis was born in 1944. He grew up in Los Angeles. In his 20s, he enrolled at UCLA so he could become a physician and ended up going into reconstructive surgery in 1974. Just four years later, he started a family. He and his wife had two children and lived in Petaluma, north of San Francisco, but ended up divorcing in 1995. In his free time, Tavis enjoyed painting and going to shows, things like the theater, you know, finer arts. While taking a pottery class, he met Deborah Sigmund, a recently divorced single mother. Tavis and Deborah were married in a lavish ceremony in Paris in 1996. Upon returning home, she became an important part in his medical practice advising patients on plastic surgery and aftercare. The business was flourishing. He did abdominal plasties, liposuction, facelifts, brow lifts, rhinoplasties, and breast augmentations or implants. He had a great reputation, former coworker Mark Hurd told People. On the morning of July 3rd, 1997, the Tavises drove to work. When they arrived, they were shocked to see that their 8.30 appointment was sitting outside. Office manager Kay Carter usually got to work before them and opened up. The Tavises entered through the back of the office and Deborah paused to fix her makeup. She heard her husband talking to a woman who described having multiple surgeons. Tavis responded, I'm sorry, but I care. According to documents read in court, Deborah then heard a succession of gunshots. She ran out the back door to another office building nearby and called 911. You have to remember this was before cell phones were everywhere. Responding officers arrived to Dr. Michael Tavish, 53, dead from multiple gunshot wounds, according to Utah's Desert News. On the floor near her desk was 59-year-old Kay Carter, alive but critically injured. Kay Carter appeared to have sustained single gunshot wound to the head. She was not moving, but she was moaning, former Petaluma police detective Danny Fish told producers. That's like the perfect detective name, Danny Fish. Detective Danny Fish, sorry. Carter was rushed to a nearby hospital. Detectives determined the killer had entered Tavis's office from the same rear entrance as the doctor, and that Carter had been the first shooting victim. 
Dr. Tavis was shot one time in the chest and then one time in the side as he turned to run. And as he was trying to run towards the waiting room area, he was shot two more times in the back. Due to the number of times he was shot, investigators believe the killing was personal in nature and the doctor was the actual target. Investigators asked Deborah if there was anyone who held a grudge against her husband. She was able to recall that there had been a number of patients who had been unhappy with their procedures. Over the course of his career, Tavis had been sued dozens of times, according to the Associated Press. These included malpractice complaints and accusations of negligence and incompetence. Our investigators began working actively to follow up on them to see if there was anything unusual in their behavior. Did they have criminal arrest records? Had they made prior threats? So they begin working on each of these people as potential suspects, former Petaluma Police Chief Patrick Parks told individuals. Deborah Soka, who worked in a neighboring building, told investigators she had seen a suspicious woman inside a small pickup truck behind Dr. Tavis's office on the morning of the murder. She had seen the same vehicle there a week before. I had left for my lunch break around one and came back and she was in the parking lot. But what was really strange was the end of the day at five o'clock, she was still there. Same position, just staring out at our building. One week later, the day of the shooting, I get there early in the morning and here she is again. Investigators begin looking into potential suspects from a list provided by Deborah Tavis. One suspect investigators were unable to contact was Teresa Ramirez. On the day of Dr. Tavis's murder, Teresa first traveled to the Santa Rosa home of her HMO's doctor, Dr. Fias. Apparently, he was her first target. He was in charge of approving Ramirez's surgery requests. He requested Ramirez see a psychiatrist before approving further medical procedures. He was out of town, but his name was on a list later found in her hotel room. She had been operated on by multiple surgeons, most of whom refused to do more than one operation because they found her too difficult, Fias explained. Ramirez became irate upon learning her surgery request had been denied. Fias eventually called security to have her removed from his office. She looked at me and glared and said, I'll show you why. She put her hands on her blouse and made a motion as if she was going to rip it open. That must have been the time that she exposed her breasts to somebody. Investigators also discovered an Amtrak ticket to Van Nuys, California, a 10-minute drive from the office of her other plastic surgeon, Dr. Shaw. After being found in a diabetic coma, shortly after shooting Dr. Tavis and his office manager, Kay, she regained consciousness and was arrested. So they had said that she went into a spiral after being diagnosed with diabetes. So clearly she didn't start taking care of herself so she could be healthy and, and that's another thing, many people who don't take care of their diabetes, they get into bad places with their mental health. Some people have said that it's due to spikes in blood sugar. I don't know, I don't have diabetes. I have had clients who um, have seen massive improvements in their space um, where they are headwise when they do take care of their, their um, diabetes, uh, like not taking their insulin has caused them to not have uh, very 
I don't want to say not rational thoughts, but they did get super paranoid when they weren't taking their insulin and they weren't managing uh, their blood sugars. And then once they started taking their insulin and managing their blood sugars, uh, paranoia started to subside. That isn't true for everybody. It is some people in some people um, not managing their insulin and blood sugars and taking care of their diabetes can have uh, effects on their mental health. In February of 1999, Teresa Ramirez did trial for murder of Dr. Michael Tavis and the attempted murder of Kay Carter. Teresa appeared gaunt and sickly in the Sonoma County courtroom and had attempted suicide by hanging since being arrested. Her defense attorney, Harry Allen, entered a dual plea of not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. He argued that Teresa did not even remember the shootings and suffered from a debilitating mental illness called body dysmorphic disorder. Although Dr. Tavis wasn't the first plastic surgeon murdered by a disgruntled patient, the disorder see seldom, if ever, leads to violence. Teresa's defense argued that the disorder literally caused her to lose her mind. She had a completely distorted view of herself and the surgical procedures she underwent, but incriminating evidence presented by the prosecution painted a grim picture of Teresa and her crimes, particularly in terms of how premeditated they were. Ballistics expert Richard Waller testified that the hollow point bullets used to kill Dr. Tavis and wound Kay Carter came from a 38 caliber revolver belonging to the defendant. It was one of two guns she had with her when she was found three days later in her San Francisco hotel room. He also said that the use of such bullets intended to do more damage than regular bullets ever would, in which in his opinion showed signs of definite premeditation. Additional witness testimony showed that a woman who resembled Teresa had been seen waiting in a pickup truck outside Dr. Tavish's clinic on the morning he was shot. Municipal Court Judge Patricia Gray said that the evidence presented showed probable cause to demonstrate special circumstances of lying in wait with a gun, which meant that she was potentially eligible for the death penalty. It took a jury nine hours to convict Teresa Mary Ramirez for the murder of Dr. Tavis and attempted murder of Kay Carter. She was sentenced to two consecutive life terms at California's Valley State Prison. Teresa continued to claim she had no memory of the murders, but eventually acknowledged that she could not dispute her identity as Dr. Tavish's killer, given her possession of the murder weapon and strong evidence of motive. She's been at the California Institute for Women since 1999, and all of her appeals have been denied. So that was the story of Teresa Ramirez, a woman who killed her doctor because of her as gruesome and awful as it sounds because she had body dysmorphic disorder and was not happy with her uh, surgeries uh, next week we have the horrible and unfortunate story of Beverly Allett she is an English child serial killer so that is an absolutely all new level of horrible and low. Um, in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>